Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, your host, as always, and this is episode number 21. And what an episode it is, folks. I am so glad to be recording again. Though this is the second episode you've heard since the hiatus, it's the first that I've recorded. And actually, it's the first episode I've recorded at all since early May. So it's really good to be really good to be getting back in the saddle again, so to speak. This time, we will be looking at the sixth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. As well, later on in the episode, I will have a spotlight on Vin Sullivan, the first editor of the Superman stories from the comic books. Just to give you an update on when I, where I've been for the last month, my computer kind of went belly up on me. I took it down to the Apple Store, and they ended up replacing both the hard drive and the power supply. Uh, it was still under warranty, so it didn't cost me anything except for the three trips down there. Uh, and they even gave me a bigger hard drive, uh, this one being 500 gig, because apparently they don't make the 300 gig models anymore. And they even upgraded to the latest version of OS X unexpectedly. So getting both of those at no charge was a really nice surprise. And really, I was impressed with both the professionalism and the friendliness of everyone I encountered at the Apple Store. I really can't recommend Max enough as it is, but my experience with their tech support, I really want to recommend them all the more. Having dealt with tech support from other computer companies in the past, it usually only results in more headaches, but that was definitely not the case here. So I'm very pleased with you know how it all turned out. I'm still trying to resolve a couple minor issues, nothing major, and nothing I really couldn't live with if I had to, but I'll try to get those ironed out soon, or I may end up taking it back down there to have them look at it. In any event, it's nothing that should interfere with the show, so that's great. Speaking of, I want to apologize to the listeners for having to take the break at all. You know, it was nothing that I could help on my end. But I still felt bad about it because I'm a big believer in, you know, when you commit to something, you need to stick with it. So I'm very sorry for the missed weeks, and I thank you very much for your patience and your continued support of the show. I hope to make up those missed weeks at some point. I'm not exactly sure how I'll go about doing that, but we will see. But still, thanks again for wetting out the break and for coming back along with the show. We've got some great stories coming down the pike, and I definitely think it will be worth the wait. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a mini-cast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. note before we get into the uh, the meat of the show. I am suffering from a bit of seasonal allergies. Uh, normally they don't affect me too much, but with the ever-changing weather we've had this spring, they've really hit me hard in this past week. I feel fine, 
it's just something I have to wait out. But if my voice sounds a little off, or if I sound a little congested, I do apologize. But like I said, this episode we are looking at the sixth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. The story is titled, Superman Champions Universal Peace, or as the Kitchen Sink Volumes named it, The Most Deadly Weapon. It is comprised of strips 91 to 126 of the dailies, which makes it the longest story so far. And those 36 strips ran from May 1st, 1939 to June 10th, 1939. That puts it starting a day before the likely release of Action Comics number 13 and ending about a week after the likely release of Action Comics number 14. So this was being published right alongside the three issues Michael Kaiser and I covered in episode 20. The writer is, of course, Jerry Siegel, and art is by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy. As our story begins, Clark Kent is assigned by his editor to cover a story involving Professor Adolphus Runyon. Clark asks what Runyon has done to warrant his attention, and his editor explains that the professor is known for his amazing inventions. That's good enough for Clark, so he heads out. Arriving later at Runyon's laboratory, introductions are made, and Runyon tells Clark he's got a story that simply must be on page one. It seems he's de- he has developed what he believes to be the most deadly weapon ever created for modern warfare. Instead of calling the cops about this crackpot apparently cooking up military-grade chemical weapons in his basement, Clark tells the professor to expl- er, excuse me, elucidate, because apparently Clark is high society now. Runyon shows Clark a test tube, which he says contains a gas so powerful that it can penetrate any type of gas mask. Clark is a bit skeptical, so he asks the professor if he can back up his words. Runyon says he suspected Clark would be a doubting Thomas, so he was prepared for a demonstration. And at this point, Runyon unveils an adorable baby monkey named Ambrose. No, this story hasn't taken a bizarre twist. It's all part of the plot, but naturally, the monkey only makes Clark even more confused. And believe me, those aren't words I ever thought I would say on this podcast. Runyon explains that Ambrose the monkey is going to help him demonstrate the effectiveness of the gas. So Runyon puts a little gas mask on the monkey, then places him in a chamber and proceeds to fill the chamber with regular gas. But because Ambrose is wearing the gas mask, and and don't ask me where Runyon found a gas mask, especially made for a baby monkey, but regardless, the monkey is okay. Runyon then fills the chamber with his newly created gas, killing the monkey. You might suspect this would anger Clark, you know, killing an innocent monkey and all, but as we've seen in the past, Clark hates animals, so he doesn't bat an eye. Runyon celebrates the success of his deadly gas, and Clark asks what he plans to do with it, to which Runyon replies he plans to turn it over to the War Department, but only in the case of a defensive war. Just then, a trio of goons enter the lab and tell Clark to take a hike because they want to talk to Runyon. Clark whines, saying he hasn't finished his interview, but after a bit of manhandling, Clark tucks his tail and leaves. However, he sticks around outside the lab, using his super hearing to eavesdrop on their conversation. Finally, we get Clark being a super eavesdropper with good reason. And it only took a year. It's a good thing Clark is listening in, though, because the three thugs put pressure on Runyon to turn over the formula for the new gas. How did they find out about it when it seems Runyon was only going public when he talked to Clark? We don't know, but that's okay. They're war profiteers, and they're evil. Anyway, Runyon stands his ground and tells the three guys to get out, but as the goons leave, they warn Runyon he's got 24 hours to turn over the formula, or else. The racketeers roll out in a taxi, and Clark follows in another taxi, back to a house near a private airfield. Clark makes note of the house's location, you know, just in case, then heads back to the Daily Star to write up his story on Runyon's new invention. And I feel obligated to call into question the ethics of printing a story on a weapon devised by a private citizen with intentions on selling it to the military, especially when the weapon has already put the man's life in possible danger. But I digress and it ultimately turns out to be a moot point because just as Clark turns in a story, his editor receives a call saying that Runyon has been murdered. 
There is little doubt in Clark's mind that the three thugs are the ones that murdered Runyon. So he heads home and, shedding the mild-mannered guise of Clark Kent, leaps out as Superman, ready to dole out a little two-fisted justice. Arriving at the house he noted earlier, which we're only just now told belongs to a guy named Bartow, Clark eavesdrops, again, outside the window on Bartow and the other two thugs. One of the thugs asks why Bartow killed Runyon when they said he had 24 hours. And Bartow said, and I'm quoting here, Oh, I got there just as he was about to beat it. Why did he go back? It really makes no sense, especially given that he would have had to have done so in the time it took Clark to get back to the Daily Star and write his story. I mean, that's only a few hours tops. So Bartow and his thugs would have had to left Runyon's, gone to the house, then Bartow pretty much turned right around and went back to Runyon's. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, while they're talking, they also let out a bit of, bit of information that the formula was going to be used to further a civil war in the country of Baravia, which lets Super Eavesdropper Man in on their plan. A bit later, Bartow and the other two thugs take off in a plane headed for Baravia. With a running leap, Superman jumps on top of the plane, almost losing his footing in doing so. Yes, that's funny, but let's see you jump on top of a moving plane, okay? But, but, despite the stumbling around, Superman is able to catch himself and settle in for the long ride overseas. As the plane nears Baravia, Bartow and the other thugs begin counting their future money. Soon, the plane is flying over the skies of the war-torn country, which means it's time for Superman to go into action. Making his way to the front of the plane, Superman rips open the top of the plane, somehow not causing the cabin to decompress and the plane to crash, but regardless, curling open the top of the plane like a can of tuna, Superman leaps down into the cockpit and confronts Bartow. As you can imagine, Bartow is a bit surprised to see Superman, but Superman gets right down to business, saying Bartow shouldn't worry who he is, but what he'll do, then demands Bartow give him the formula. Bartow plays dumb, saying he doesn't know anything about any formula, but Superman threatens to, quote, crack his head like an egg, unquote. He then grabs the other two thugs and tosses them about, issuing more threats to their well-being if they don't cut out the lies. Finally, Bartow has had enough and relents, saying if Superman takes over the controls of the plane, which is somehow still flying despite the gaping hole in the cockpit, and Superman tossing around full-grown men inside it, he'll get the formula. But as Bartow makes his way to get the formula, a sinister sneer crosses his lips. Suddenly, Bartow whirls, firing several shots into the plane's controls before leaping out of the plane, laughing at how he has doomed Superman, and, although he doesn't mention it, his two accomplices. As Bartow parachutes down, Superman climbs from the plane and leaps downward after Bartow. At what the narration calls breathtaking speed, Superman hurtles closer and closer to Bartow, finally reaching him and putting him in a bear hug. Cutting off any further attempts Bartow might make to escape, Superman threatens to tear the parachute to ribbons if Bartow doesn't behave. Meanwhile, the plane, with Bartow's two cronies still inside, plummets down towards Earth. The plane crashes and the two thugs somehow survive. The crash is witnessed by a group of soldiers, who somehow recognize that the plane belongs to Bartow. They pull the two thugs from the wreckage and inquire about Bartow's whereabouts. One of the thugs says he bailed out before the crash, and one of the soldiers replies that he saw a parachute descending a ways off. So back with Superman and Bartow, who by this time have landed, Superman is still harassing Bartow to give him the formula, and Bartow finally relents, for reals this time but says that a munitions magnate named Lubain will have his hide for doing so. However, Bartow changes his mind again when he sees a cavalry of soldiers coming over the hill, guns ablazing at our hero. Superman casts off Bartow and tells the soldiers to bring it on. The soldiers attack Superman, but are taken aback when their bayonets simply crumple against his invulnerable chest. Just then, a plane soars overhead, launching a bomb which explodes in a fiery blast, sending Superman and the soldiers flying from the impact. While the soldiers remain unharmed, the blast renders Superman unconscious. After going so far as to check for a heartbeat, 
the soldiers drag Superman back to their base camp. When they arrive, a commanding officer gives the order that Superman is to be executed. You think your neighbor mowing the lawn at 7 in the morning on a Saturday is a rude awakening? Try waking up staring down the barrel of a couple members of a firing squad. Because that's exactly what happens to Superman. And what's worse, Bartow comes up and starts mocking him. He goes on to say that he plans on selling the formula to LeBain before bidding Superman adieu. After Bartow and his cronies leave, the captain gives the command to fire. The squad shoots, and as he's pounded by a barrage of bullets, the Man of Tomorrow collapses to the ground. Satisfied with what they feel is a job well done, the squad turns to leave, when from behind, they hear a voice. Just a minute, boys. Try again. It's Superman, alive and well, completely unharmed by the shots. The captain is baffled to explain how the entire firing squad supposedly missed Superman, but orders the group to shoot him again. The bullets simply bounce off Superman's chest, and after some more harassment of the squad, and watching one soldier sh actually shoot himself in the foot, Superman bounds off as the squad fruitlessly continues to try and gun him down. Presently, we find Superman racing down a Baravian road as shells explode all around him. He soon comes across a town being shelled, leaving helpless women and children dead in its wake. This, of course, is a job for Superman. So our hero charges towards the troops responsible for the attack. As the men flee, Superman grabs the cannon the troops are using to bombard the town and smashes it, turning the cannon into so much scrap metal. And I like this panel quite a bit. Though it's not a direct homage, it is very evocative, again, of the cover of Action Comics number 1, all the way down to a wide-eyed soldier fleeing in terror in the lower left corner of the panel. Schuster and other artists are clearly getting a lot of mileage out of that type of imagery, which tells me that it was as popular and iconic in 1939 as it is today. This panel also reminds me of the cover to a comic from the late 1990s called Superman, A Nation Divided. That comic, which was an Elseworlds story written by Roger Stern, finds baby Kal-El's rocket landing in America in the 1840s, and as an adult, he becomes involved in the Civil War. The cover, as well as a splash page inside the book, which were both illustrated by Eduardo Barreto, shows Superman even though he's never actually called that in this story, if I'm remembering correctly, lifting a Civil War-era cannon, cannon above his head while Union and Confederate troops battle all around him. And it's, it's a very cool cover, and it just shows that, you know, this kind of imagery continues throughout Superman's long history. So, after trashing the cannon, Superman then grabs an armful of bombs, and dodging a hail of anti-aircraft gunfire leaps towards a nearby munitions works and hurls the bombs downward, causing the plant to explode in a huge ball of flame and, no doubt, killing anyone who was, in, who was inside. Back into the sky, Superman heads towards a dirigible. Leaping on top of it, Superman rips the dirigible in half, causing it to explode in a double panel that is very reminiscent of the famous Sam Shear photo of the Hindenburg explosion, which happened just slightly over two years prior to this story, actually. And, much like with the munitions plant, Superman no doubt kills several dozen people in destroying the blimp. But it's okay because they're evil, right? Even though Superman hasn't once paused to ponder which side of the Civil War these folks are on, or what their position is. Though on the other hand, at least one group of them was attacking a village of defenseless women and children. And we saw very early in Superman's stories that Superman hates munitions makers, so there's that. Anyway, meanwhile, Bartow arrives at Lubain's office and delivers the formula. He starts to tell Lubain about his run-in with Superman, but Lubain cuts him off. He hands the formula to his assistant and orders him to rush a sample of the gas into production. Just as the assistant leaves, explosions rock the room. Lubain grabs the phone and calls someone. The who-the-heck-is-bombing-me hotline, perhaps? In any event, he gets reports of a man leaping through the sky and dropping bombs. Bartow and his crony deduce from this that Superman must have somehow gotten away from the firing squad. Bartow explains to Lubain who Superman is and that he's after the formula. 
But just then, Lubain's assistant comes in with a vial containing a sample of the gas. It seems he created that rather quickly, doesn't it? I'm not a chemist, but it seems that there should be a bit more to creating deadly gas than just dumping a few ingredients together and stirring. But, moving right along, Lubain relishes in the fact that now he possesses the deadly gas, saying that now he need fear no one. No one. Later, Superman appears at Lubain's office. Inside, Lubain is paying Bartow and his thugs for their work. As they leave, Bartow tells Lubain that they're taking the first plane out of Dodge and advise Lubain to do the same. But Lubain is unafraid of what he considers to be a myth and continues his rantings. Still referring to the mythical Superman, eh? Superstitious fools! I've got it at last, what I've always sought, the most horribly destructive gas on Earth. Nothing can stop me now. Nothing! And you just gotta love a good, maniacal rambling from a villain. And speaking of things I love, just then, Superman smashes through the window. He's got a head thumping with Lubain's name on it and is ready to deliver. Lubain warns him about the gas and threatens to smash the vial, but Superman stoically calls his bluff and charges forward, causing Lubain to drop the vial. Fumes from the gas quickly fill the room. Lubain begins to choke on the deadly gas and pleads for help, but Superman is unflinching saying that what he's experiencing is only a taste of what Lubain had in store for others. Lubain continues his pleas, and despite the fact that he's dying, has the wherewithal to ask why Superman is unaffected, to which Superman says that his physical structure makes him immune to the gas's effects. Lubain falls to the floor, dead from the toxic gas. Superman wishes goodbye to bad rubbish before grabbing the formula and leaping off for an even tougher job. A bit later, Superman alights near a rather governmental-looking building. Inside, representatives from the two factions involved in Baravia's civil war are holding supposed peace talks. But since the talks have degenerated into childlike squabbles, the mediator, who apparently completely misses the point of his job, says they might as well break up the talks. But in through the window swings Superman, saying that he very much disagrees and that no one is leaving until an agreement is reached. The mediator, yes, the mediator, gets all up in Superman's face and begins screaming at him for daring to interrupt the talks and demanding he leave. Superman takes this as an indication that they need a little persuasion, and so, like the mighty Samson of the Bible, he begins destroying the support pillars of the room, causing chunks of ceiling to rain down on the men. Superman continues his swath of destruction until only one pillar is left standing. Superman then demands that they continue their talks or else. These folks are going to stop killing each other if Superman has to kill them to make it happen. And so, under the stern eye of Superman, the two parties finally reach an agreement on peaceful terms. An announcement is made of the deal and people in the streets of Baravia explode with cries of jubilation. Slipping away in all the uproar, Superman changes back to Clark Kent, and no word on where he got Clark's clothes uh, since he came to Baravia as Superman, but he heads to the airport. As he arrives, he sees Bartow and his cronies boarding a plane, something that makes Clark very happy to see. Clark then heads back to the telegraph office and sends a message to the Daily Star that not only has the Baravian Civil War ended in a truce, but that Runyon's killers are on their way back to the States and that the police should meet them at the airport. But that's not all. The Telegraph also reveals to the reader, for the first time, that the Daily Star is located in Metropolis, New York, and that its editor and Clark's boss is one George Taylor. So finally, after more than a year, two integral parts of the Superman mythology are at last given their names. And it's certainly noteworthy that both of these were named not in the comic books, but in the newspaper dailies. As I said back in episode 10, we are going to see a lot of the important elements of the mythology show up for the first time in the newspaper strip. I'm not certain that there was ever a conscious effort to make those things first show up there, because there's still a lot that will show up for the first time in the comics as well. But it's interesting when you study the overall history of the character to see just how many things showed up in other media 
and then worked their way into the comic books in one form or another. I don't think it's a spoiler to say either that at least one of these newly given names sticks around for a very long time as well. We've had two explicit references to Superman operating out of Cleveland before now, but here Metropolis, New York is named, and will remain so from here on out, though eventually the idea that Metropolis is in the state of New York will be dropped, or at least vagued up considerably. Unfortunately, good old George Taylor won't last as long. He will only be with us for a little more than a year before being replaced by a much more familiar name, which, ironically, also comes from a non-comics iteration of Superman. But more on that when we get there. So, to wrap up this little yarn, Clark sends the telegraph, then boards the plane with Bartow and the others. As the plane lands, the thugs are greeted by Taylor and the police, who immediately place them under arrest for the murder of Runyon. Bartow asks who would make such a charge, and Clark says that he does, and that Bartow will pay for his crimes in a court of law, then heads back to the Daily Star to file his story. Sometime later, at Bartow's trial, Clark testifies that he overheard Bartow threaten Runyon's life. Which he technically didn't, but whatever. At this point, Bartow and the other two start yelling at one another right in the middle of the courtroom, trying to blame each other for killing Runyon. And don't think things can't get more absurd, because as a result of their arguing, the judge immediately sentences all three of them to the electric chair. I'm just at a loss to explain things sometimes. Anyway, later, back at the Daily Star, Lois Lane and the other employees congratulate Clark for making such a stir at the trial and for landing the scoop on the Baravian Civil War. Clark asks Lois if it has changed how she sees him, but Lois just tells him that, in her opinion, him getting the story was dumb luck and nothing more. She may have been gone from the dailies for two months, but it's still the same old Lois. But Clark, and <laughs> uh, God bless him, he goes, your admiration overwhelms me. And the look on his face is absolutely hilarious. It is equal parts a look of sarcasm, and with apologies to Michael Bailey for swiping his phrase, Clark Kent has had enough of your... Well, you know. It reminds me, and this is a weird reference, but it reminds me of that scene from A Charlie Brown Christmas when Charlie Brown confronts uh, Violet for sending him a Christmas card, and she's like, I didn't send you a Christmas card, and then walks away, and he's like, don't you know sarcasm when you hear it? But it's just great stuff. I'm pretty sure, though, that Lois doesn't know sarcasm, and probably was only about two seconds away from screaming at Clark for being a spineless worm. But just then, an office boy tells Clark that Taylor wants to see him. Taylor tells Clark that he did good work on covering the story, but wants to know what happens to Runyon's formula. And Clark, who is smoking a pipe at this point, I, I feel I have to point out, says that he doesn't know anything about it. Then later, when Clark is alone, we see him tearing up the formula, giving the reason that it is too deadly to be permitted to exist. And with the formula gone, everyone lives happily ever after. Except Runyon, the dozens of people Superman slaughtered, and, of course, the dear departed Ambrose the monkey, who, now that Clark has destroyed the formula, died for nothing. So, after a brief moment of silence for Ambrose, I will be back with my thoughts on the story. This story, I'm really mixed on it. It's one of those stories that's quite fun if you don't actually pay too much attention to what you're reading. So, let's start off with the stuff that I liked. I really liked Professor Runyon. He's sort of a proto-version of the eccentric scientists that will be, you know, that will show up pretty regularly starting in the 50s and eventually giving us characters like Professor Pepperwinkle, Uncle Oscar, and Emil Hamilton. And I love this type of character in Superman stories, and I really miss that we haven't had that in some time in the current comic books. But not a lot is done with Runyon here, and he's even killed off off-panel. But what we saw of him definitely brought to mind those characters that will be coming, you know, coming in a ways down the road. I also got a chuckle over Superman stumbling when he jumped on the airplane. 
It's a very small scene, just a very throwaway scene, but it shows that we're dealing with a Superman who's not Mr. Perfect, and I like that here. And on a related note, Siegel's been putting Superman through his paces a lot in recent stories. There was the ultra-humanite stuff that Michael Kaiser and I looked at last episode, with ultra-humanite getting the best of Superman, both mentally and physically. And here we see Superman getting taken out by the bomb, dragged before a firing squad, and although I like a super Superman, it's all a welcome change from those earliest stories where it was basically Superman just throwing people around. And again in this story, we've got a bad guy who's a little more supervillainy than in previous stories. Bartow isn't like the ultra-humanite, but he's more than just the run-of-the-mill villain. You know, he's got the deadly gas, the maniacal rambling, and that indicates to me that ultra that the ultra-humanite wasn't a fluke, but a conscious effort on Siegel's part to make the villains as fantastic as the hero. Um, the explosion is really nice, and past that we've got lots of action, with Superman tearing through the battlefield, smashing the cannon, tossing bombs, blowing up the factory, causing the dirigible to go down in flames. It's all very dynamic, action-packed stuff, but not in a, you know, gratuitous or obnoxious way. Unfortunately, that does bring me to what I didn't like about the story. First of all, we've got Superman killing a lot of people in this issue. Everyone who is in the munitions plant, everyone who is in the dirigible. Bartow's death is certainly on Superman's hands morally, if not legally. <sighs> and story-wise, there's just a lot of nonsense in, in this one. Um, I snarked on quite a bit of it in the commentary, but... We've got Superman ripping a giant hole in the airplane's cockpit and somehow not crashing the plane. When the plane finally does crash into a huge ball of fire, the two people inside somehow survive, despite not even being strapped in. Soldiers on the ground somehow recognize it as Bartow's plane, despite there being no indication he's any type of person that would be known by the ground troops. There's a bomb powerful enough to leave Superman unconscious, but doesn't harm the human soldiers around him. And then there's the timeliness issues. How did Lubain's assistant whip up a sample of the gas so quickly? Why did Bartow's trial take place so quickly? And why were he and his assistants sentenced right in the middle of the, right in the, middle of the trial? Uh, the time issues don't necessarily affect the story, I mean, Siegel was trying to get it all packed in without continually, you know, sometime later. But it's just, it's just weird. And I'm also left scratching my head about some of Superman's actions. Why not confront Bartow and the Racketeers before they flew all the way to Baravia? Where did Clark Kent's clothes come from? Why risk bringing the formula all the way home to the States when he could just tear it to shreds while still in Baravia? It's just all weird, and like I said, it's not necessarily things you would notice on a quick read of the story, but when you look at it closer, they stick out like a sore thumb. Art-wise, it's a really nice story. Uh, there's little to complain about there. The scenes of Superman racing through the battlefield and blowing up the factory and the dirigible are all really nice, like I said. There's an appropriate amount of detail in the backgrounds. Even Superman is pretty consistent throughout. Uh, the S is there on his chest and cape the whole time, and it's pretty consistently sized, too. There's a couple of wonky panels or poses, but overall, it's a strong effort from Schuster and Cassidy. This story is also a good example of Schuster's command over facial expressions and people. I've talked about how much I loved Clark's expression at the end of the story, but expressions on all the characters are nice throughout the whole thing. Two, all the various people in the story look different. Even in black and white, you can tell a difference between the key players in the story, Runyon, Bartow, and Lubain. Even George Taylor. Uh, many of these Golden Age artists just kind of had their stock characters, and it was sometimes difficult to tell one from the next. But these are all pretty e easily distinguished, and without being comedically exaggerated characters, which is something I really appreciated, especially since it was in black and white. This story has been reprinted in the first dailies volume from Kitchen Sink Press, 
It was also colorized and printed in Superman number two, and that colorized version was reprinted in the Superman Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 2. And as always, the story is available to read for free online at DC's site, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. Superman, a name known throughout the world to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. Vincent Sullivan was a comic book editor, artist, writer, and publisher, and one of the first men to truly be able to hold the title of Superman's boss. He was born in Brooklyn, New York on June 5, 1911, the second of five children. His father worked in the banking industry for many years as an employee for New York Clearinghouse. Sullivan spent most of his life in Brooklyn, where he also attended grade school with future comic book writer Gardner Fox. The artistic bug hit Sullivan early. His first published work came when he was still a teenager in the form of a Jibby Jones cartoon printed in the pages of the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper. The Eagle had a small supplement aimed at children. Sullivan began submitting various cartoon strips for possible publication, and eventually one was accepted. This Jibby Jones feature would later be resurrected for use in several of the earliest issues of New Fun, as well as one issue of More Fun Comics for National. Wanting to pursue cartooning, Sullivan did not attend college. And later, likely in the very late 20s or early 30s, Sullivan found occasional work illustrating sports cartoons for the New York Daily News. At one point, they had a position open for a full-time sports cartoonist, and while Sullivan applied, the position ultimately went to Gus Edson, illustrator of the long-running comic strips The Gumps and Dondi. While in later interviews, Sullivan could not recall how he met Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, he joined Wheeler Nicholson's National Allied Publications in 1935 as a writer and artist on humor strips such as Spike Spalding, Charlie Fish, and the previously mentioned Jibby Jones. His first work at National is credited to be in New Fun Number no. 3 from early 1935, which was National's third comic book. He also wrote some of the many text stories that were published in National's books, most often always under a pen name. It is believed that Sullivan used pen names such as Paul Dean, Larry Dean, and Frank Thomas, but it's possible the other writers used those same pen names. Sullivan also drew dozens of covers for National's books. While his covers were primarily used for more fun comics and the earliest issues of New Fun and New Comics, Sullivan also drew the main image used on the cover of the 1939 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. And perhaps more historically significant, 
the cover to the first issue of Detective Comics, a title which is still being published today. During this time, Sullivan, along with Whitney Ellsworth, began editing for Wheeler Nicholson as well. With the comics industry still in its infancy, Sullivan and Ellsworth had no real guide concerning how to do their jobs, making them truly groundbreaking in their positions. The two men were responsible for buying features to fill the books, utilizing materials sent or brought in from writers and artists, as well as continuing to write and draw filler material themselves as needed. In late 1937 or early 1938, Ellsworth left the company, and as Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz took over National's operations, Sullivan became full editor of National's three books, More Fun Comics, Detective Comics, and New Adventure Comics, as well as a new book that was being ready for launch, Action Comics. In his position as the book's editor, Sullivan was responsible for choosing Superman to be featured on the cover of this new title, which would launch the Man of Steel. Sullivan continued in his position as editor, editing Superman's earliest adventures in action, as well as the debut of Superman, the first comic book devoted to a single character, and the debut of Batman in Detective Comics number 27. In 1939, Sullivan approached Grover Whalen, one of the men involved with the upcoming World's Fair in New York, with the idea of producing a comic book to tie in with the fair. Whalen agreed, and with the rights secured, Sullivan went back to Donenfeld and Leibowitz to see if they would be interested in co-publishing the book. Sullivan made a deal with Donenfeld and Leibowitz for a share of the profits in the book, and soon the 1939 issue of New York World's Fair Comics was published. With 96 pages and a 25-cent price, the book was the largest and most expensive comic book published to date, and succeeded in introducing Superman and other characters such as the Sandman to many, many more readers. Unfortunately, the historic issue was also the beginning of the end for Sullivan's time at National. Returns from the book never came to Sullivan as he expected or believed they should. Dissatisfied with this, as well as uncomfortable with what he saw as questionable business practices from Donenfeld and Leibowitz and other injustices within the company, Sullivan quit the company in late 1939. Around this time, Sullivan was approached by Charles McAdams, president of the McNaught Newspaper Syndicate, and Frank Markey of the Frank Markey Syndicate, who proposed forming a new comic book publishing house. Sullivan agreed, and Columbia Comics Corporation was born in 1940. There, Sullivan launched Big Shot Comics, an omnibus anthology title that would ultimately run 104 issues until the company went out of business in 1949. That title saw early comics work from creators such as Gardner Fox, Craig Flessel, Ogden Whitney, Bob Powell, and others. Big Shot Comics would also spin off into other superhero titles such as Skyman and The Face. While at Columbia Comics, a priority for Sullivan was to try to be more progressive with the company in publishing and developing new features and strips, instead of simply relying on reprinting material from syndicates. Columbia did publish many new features, but Sullivan felt the company's owners were a bit reluctant to make that type of material a large part of the company's roster. So in 1943, Sullivan left Columbia to form his own publishing company, Magazine Enterprises. The company published under many different names during its lifetime, including Life Romance Publications, Complex and Sussex Publications Companies, etc. In its early years, it did partly rely on syndicate reprints, but eventually the majority of their publishing roster was filled with all original material. Its first book, The United States Marines, was published in cooperation with the U.S. Marine Corps and told stories and offered information about the Marines. It was followed up in 1951 with a similar title containing war genre stories, The American Air Forces. Throughout the run of the company, Sullivan and Magazine Enterprises published comics in a wide variety of genres. They were responsible for producing some of the earliest Western titles, such as Durango Kid, Tim Holt, and Straight Arrow. Not only did these Western titles feature work from creators such as Gardner Fox, it was these titles that gave birth to a character known as Ghost Rider by Ray Crank and Dick Ayers. This character would be appropriated in 1967 by Marvel Comics and eventually renamed Knight Rider, then Phantom Rider after the introduction of Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich's supernatural anti-hero Ghost Rider in 1972. Magazine Enterprises also had humor and crime books as well as jungle titles such as Thunder by Frank Frazetta, 
which in 1952 was adapted into a Columbia Pictures serial starring Buster Crabbe called King of the Congo. They also published licensed books starring actors such as Jimmy Durante and Dick Powell, and fictional characters like Robin Hood and bread mascot Little Miss Sunbeam. Movies such as The Pride of the Yankees starring Gary Cooper and Joan of Arc starring Ingrid Bergman also received comic book adaptations published by Sullivan at Magazine Enterprises. In 1946, the company published a one-shot comic called Romantic Picture Funnies, which contained reprints of the Mary Worth comic strip. This title was the first comic book devoted to romance tales, predating Prize Comics' Young Romance by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, which would boost those types of stories into a full-on genre of comics. Superhero titles were largely conspicuously absent from Magazine Enterprise's roster. The closest they came to superheroes were The Avenger and Strongman, both in 1955, and, of course, Funny Man in 1948. That book, starring a crime-fighting comedian, reunited Superman creators Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster with their former editor and was the last major creative collaboration between Siegel and Shuster. Sadly, despite the creative talent, popular titles, and a wide variety of genres at Magazine Enterprises, the company folded in 1958. In later interviews, Sullivan cited the growing media of television as a key factor in the company's demise. Following the closure of Magazine Enterprises, Sullivan founded Sussex Food Company, there, Sullivan secured the rights to produce Popeye brand peanut butter. Unfortunately, the company was not successful, and Sullivan shortly sold out to Teddy Peanut Butter, a regional brand in New England. After that, Sullivan spent the remainder of his career working an assortment of jobs, including the advertising and promotion department of a local bank, as well as stints in fundraising and the real estate business. Though he never worked in the comics industry again following the closure of Magazine Enterprises, Sullivan was honored as a special guest at the 1998 Comic-Con in San Diego, just a few months before his death due to complications from cancer on February 3, 1999. They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I f- hate baseball. So, there you go. Um, first F-bomb of the show. Um, How did you not- beat me to the first F-bomb of the show? <laughs> Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America Fridays at twotruefreaks.libson.com Sawate. My name is Stella and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Well, folks, that does it again for another episode. I want to thank you very much for joining me once more and for waiting up the break. It's been good to sit down and record again, and hopefully you are enjoying the show now that it's back. Next episode will be the second of the show's fifth week installments. Just what will be the topic? Who knows?
Okay, well, I know what the topic will be, but you don't, so you'll have to come back and see what topic is getting tackled. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, those can be sent to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Show notes for this and all episodes can be found at the website at greatcrypton.com. At the website, you will also find the RSS feed, the link to the show's Facebook page, as well as the iTunes link. If you subscribe to this show via iTunes, please feel free to leave an iTunes review as it helps others find the show. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. That serves as a hub for many excellent Superman podcasts and vidcasts, and I recommend that you check out as many of those as time allows. I also invite you to check out my other podcast, Legends of the Batman, which I co-host with my friend Michael Kaiser, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. And you can find that at batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye! Nobody sent me a Christmas card today. I almost wish there weren't a holiday season. I know nobody likes me. Why do we have to have a holiday season to emphasize it? Thanks for the Christmas card you sent me, Violet. I didn't send you a Christmas card, Charlie Brown. Don't you know sarcasm when you hear it?